Welcome to Politically Pissed. My name is Saeed Charbini, and I'm here with my co-host, Simon. Hello. And we have a special guest today. His name is John Rocchio. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi. Well, thanks. Uh, my name is John Rocchio, as you said, and I am running for the Colorado House of Representatives in District 40. By profession, I am a professor at the School of Public Affairs at CU Denver, and uh, I'm really happy to be here with you both. Thank you for joining us. Thank I you. I really appreciate yeah. it. Yes, I'm very interested in your background as an educator, as a, I guess, as a fellow educator, I'm interested in, in, in that background. Please share us when you start teaching and, and what are your favorite courses to teach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you bet. It's, you know, I, I like to tell people that I was an accidental academic <laughs> um, because I, I knew a long time ago that I was interested in research and teaching. I had some trepidation about going to grad school and getting a PhD. Uh, it was not necessarily in my cards. If you were to, to read back into my background and see where I grew up and how I grew up, I don't think anybody would have anticipated that that was mm. the path that I was going to take. And, and where was that? <clears throat> so, oh, well, good question. So I grew up in Arizona. I grew up in a small town in northeastern Arizona called St. John's. For our politicos out there, that is the birthplace of the Udall family political dynasty. Mm. So Mo Udall, Stuart Udall, uh, and all of their progeny. Mark Udall, our one-time senator, uh, that, that is where, where that started from. So one of my little claims to fame. Uh, my best friend growing up was a Udall, so it was kind of <laughs> hard to escape that. But, um, you know, I came from a very blue-collar background. Uh, both of my parents worked for the power plant there in town, which is now actually slated for closure in 2032, I believe. And they did a variety of jobs. My father was an industrial painter. My mother was a general laborer. She worked in the coal yard at the plant. And uh, I loved growing up there. Great friends. Not much to go back to. But I don't think anybody would have ever said, oh, yeah, that, that Ronquillo kid, he's going to go off and be a professor someday. No. No, I don't think anybody <laughs> thought that. Uh, but for me, I had a passion for education. I had a passion for learning. Um, I like to tell people that my first two friends in my hometown growing up were the two librarians, uh, Alan, <laughs> yeah, a Alan and Mabel. You know these 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 uh, older folks who who really helped me with a lot of my curiosities as a kid. And you know I did okay as a student. Uh, I didn't graduate as valedictorian or anything. I think there's a lot of false indicators about what drives a person to go get a PhD, other than maybe not being all there in the head, because <laughs> it can be some ritual uh, academic hazing, but. For me, I was always very concerned about ensuring that we had good public servants. Mm. So, you know, I, I went to Arizona State for my undergraduate. I got a degree in journalism. Um, a very proud graduate of the Cronkite School there. Uh, stayed for a master's in public administration. And I worked for a bit. Um, I worked for the same company my parents uh, worked for, uh, Salt River Project, which is Arizona's, I believe, second largest public utility. Mm. Um, and uh, did some work for a small research firm. And, and then my last professional position before I went back to grad school was as a policy and research analyst for the Arizona Association of Counties. And I really loved that. Um, and I had a, a former professor um, and uh, somebody who also hailed from my same hometown, oddly enough, mm -hmm. uh, named Brent Brown whose brother Jack was a state legislator. Mm. And as a sophomore in high school, I, I, I shadowed Jack down at the state legislature in Phoenix and really got a, a, a taste for it and knew that that was something that I wanted to do, was mm. to work, um, as I often say in my own classes, as a good steward of the public trust, right? Yes. You know, I did that for a while, and then I knew that at a certain point in time, time was going to escape me. And so I went to the, the director of the School of Public Affairs at the time, uh, at Arizona State and said, hey, I think I want to get my PhD. And he said, that's great, but you're not getting it here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, why? Yeah. And he said, you need some variation on your CV. You mm -hmm. need some academic diversity. You need to go somewhere else to get it. And I said, well, I'm going to stay in Arizona. I'm going to stay here. My family's been here forever. Uh, as it happens, I'm an eighth generation Arizonan. Strong presence on my dad's side of the family in the borderlands between Sonora and Arizona. And 
he just explained, he said, well, if you're going to go into academia, it would really help to see that you're diversifying with institutions. I didn't get it. I really didn't get it. I didn't, I didn't get what went into being an academic. Mm-hmm. Um, the research aspect, the teaching aspect, everything. I, I, in general, I would say I had scratched the surface, but still had so much to learn in terms of what it was to be a professor. And so uh, I went to the University of Georgia, um, looked around for good schools of public administration and policy, and I thought, that's my lane. Like, I, I enjoyed being a policy analyst and a lobbyist, but there was something about teaching and educating future public servants that I thought was the best fit for me in terms of saying, I want to help these people who want to go on and maybe run for office or be, for the lack of better words, a bureaucrat to be that backbone that government really rests upon, right? The people who don't get all the news, the people who aren't on the front page every day of the newspaper, the people who are really just trying to keep us moving, who don't get the lion's share of, of the attention. And I found a lot of value in that. It was a, a tough four years at Georgia. Uh, it was a culture shock for me in a lot of ways, not only in terms of moving from Arizona to the deep south, but also in terms of what it meant to be a serious academic. And so anyway, fast forward um, through those four painful years at Georgia, (laughs) took my first teaching job at DePaul University in Chicago. I was there for a few years. Uh, It was a great introduction to that that life. I really enjoyed teaching there. Have really great memories of some amazing students who have become really good friends. But I'm a Westerner. I'm I'm a total Westerner. I I craved being back home. And for me, pretty much anywhere west of the Mississippi was going to be good enough. The West Coast is the best coast. Yeah. Right? I (laughs) totally agree. And, um, you know, a good friend and colleague who was on faculty here, you know, she called me up and she said, we have the perfect job for you. (laughs) You know, we we, we came up with a description and... um, one of the first people I thought of was you, and I really hope you'll consider applying. And because I was already sort of thinking at that point in time, I kind of want to be closer to home. My parents are getting a little bit older. My mother at the time uh, was was not well, um, was quite ill. And so I thought this would be a, a good opportunity to get a bit closer. And I'm glad it worked out. Uh, this is home. And it's, it's home um, forever, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Uh, my My second son was born here. Um, and my, my family has found a really great footing here. And I can easily say it's it's the best place I've ever lived. And, well, yeah. and to get to, to Simon's question, too, yeah. about the classes and whatnot. So it's interesting. So we say, you know, we're in the School of Public Affairs, and people often ask, well, what does that mean, mm-hmm. public affairs? And at a certain point in time, uh, we had a pretty good sense of humor because I even have a button that say public affairs are the best kind. <laughs> 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 and I think that that faded very soon because, you know, yeah, for, for reasons. But <laughs> but I like the fact that we did have that, that sense of humor. But um, So I, I teach a variety of classes. I teach a, a seminar on public management to our doctoral students. Um, I also teach an organizational behavior class to our executive students, which I really enjoy. Uh, I've taught social entrepreneurship in the past. And I also teach a course on public service leadership and ethics. Mm. It's really tough to distill which one is my favorite. Uh, you never want to pick favorites, but I, I love teaching my executive students, mm. which is which is kind of uh, an erroneous statement to make because I think more often than not they teach me. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are, these are the folks coming in exactly. with a decade plus of experience, okay. who are who are you know ready to take it to the next stage of their career, mm. um, and they come in with such a huge wealth of knowledge mm. in terms of their careers and where they are yeah. um, and uh, it's 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 a joy I know it sounds a little bit cheesy but it really is mm. and I teach it in an intensive format so they do a little work beforehand they come in for an intensive weekend with me and then they do a little work afterwards and then that's it mm-hmm. so for those intensive three or four days it's just a lot of fun <coughs> activity mm. and and doing things and I I I'm edified every time I do it. Yeah, so that, that's very cool. If I have to pick a favorite, Simon, that's going to be the one. <laughs> <laughs> that is really cool. I've actually also learned a lot from my students, and you know, I don't say it very much publicly because I I don't want the students to misunderstand it. But uh, the best thing about teaching is the learning that you get from your interactions with both the students and the um, and your colleagues, and I can name a few things like lane filtering. I, I learned about it from a student uh, who's passionate about it. Felony murder. Um, I learned about it from a student. Who learned about gun. felony murder. 
What's that? Felony murder. Yes, that's when you are basically charged with murder, even though you were not involved in the murder, but you happen to be driving your commi- friends. Not necessarily. It's just in the somewhere. commission of a felony, so you don't necessarily have to be the person that pulled the trigger. But if you're involved in the felony right. at all, yeah. So, and and that was you know I, this was six years ago. I was you know teaching my first couple of semesters, and the students would bring up issues, just especially very random topics. Well, <laughs> and there were a lot of them. I used to teach a lot of, at community colleges, right? So you have a lot of students from different Fair, backgrounds, yeah. and then you would learn so much. So I mean that that's really a great thing about about teaching. But what made you want to serve in the legislature? We don't see a lot of academics. Well, and I'm guessing the education part's a big part of it too. It is. Yeah. You know, and, and Simon, I think that's a great question because I think, you know, if I zoom out and I look at my career, which is about 10 years long at this point, over, over two institutions and two institutions that are very different, um, I have been very fortunate to have found myself in very, you know, different locales that have added to my education. You know, my, my, my job, and, and I feel disingenuous even just calling it a job, right, my career my, my, my profession has taken me all over the world. And in a lot of cases, um, I would say in particular with a, a relatively recent trip within the past couple of years to Hong Kong for a conference, um, there are a number of academics uh, in, in, in numerous Asian countries who are just regularly tapped, you know, either to be government ministers mm. or under ministers or something like that, or who do run openly. For, for whatever reason, in the United States, I feel that we, we took a step back from that. And mm. I think maybe because of a lot of the activist professors that were coming about in the 60s and 70s. And I think now we have shifted the, the dialogue a little bit and, and we're seeing more people. We're seeing more people even in the state. Mm. Um, you know, one of our Senate candidates, Stephanie Rose Spaulding, is uh, on faculty at UCCS. Mm. Um, we, we've seen other people, other people jumping in the Senate race. Uh, the gentleman who's a professor at DU. I think, mm. I think we're starting to see an uptick of it. And not just because people perceive us to be smart or intelligent people, but because I think it's also time to have a more varied selection of people to draw from. When it comes to being a state legislator, a lot of people have asked that question too. Why, why the state legislature? Mm. Well, one, I think some of it is because of a level of comfort, because I have worked in and around a state legislature before. Um, another is because I have a preference for state and local aspects, and I feel that I, I, I can lend my voice to that, to that expertise. But I think even going back to the whole professor thing, even on a, on a, on a larger scale, we need to realize that Barack Obama mm. <laughs> uh, also taught. We have There's Elizabeth Warren. who Exactly. And so I personally think, and obviously I have a bit of a bias here, is that... Being in a classroom can really help you temper yourself as an individual. When you were there and you have multiple people with varying you know, views on the world, and you're trying to keep peace across the whole thing. And granted, my class, you know, my classes in general, I teach by and large graduate students. The vast majority of my students have been people who've completed their undergraduate degrees, people who are in their careers already, have logged a fair amount of years, and are already quite professional, easygoing, are not, you know, out of the ordinary, passionate people. I don't have to mitigate a lot of conflict, but I have mitigated a lot of heated discussion. I have had people from varying backgrounds come in and challenge me, and gratefully so, by the way, on everything from Mm. the topic to technique to me personally. And I can tell you reading those teaching evaluations sometimes is kind of hard. I'm gratified when there's at least one that's like, oh, I think Professor Ronquillo did a great job. I really like this. I didn't like the book, maybe. But yeah, sometimes they sting a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. You can have 30 that are glowing, but you might have one that's just going to drag you down, and it's kind of yeah. tough. And it's only because we put our heart, our everything into it. And My so, favorite one, sorry, to yeah, interrupt, yeah, yeah. is when one student says the class was too hard, and another one says it was too easy. <laughs> always, right? <laughs> always. There's always going to be that. But... I, I do think that being in a school of public affairs when you have people coming in and out of your classroom who do really amazing things, to me, and because I'm a nerd in this area, right, it's, wow, you do all this stuff with, with uh, mitigating hazards with stormwater and floods, mm. right? Some people might not think that that's a sexy policy arena, but it's fascinating to learn what goes into that to make sure that the communities stay safe mm. from hazards. And then there are some people who are in the limelight a little bit more. I've had students who have run for state senate, for county commissioner, for city councils. 
and it's inspiring. It's inspiring to see them. Some have won, some have lost, but I, I admire each and every one of them mm. for, for, for running, for stepping up and doing that. Because at first when I did this and people were like, thank you for running, I'm like, why are you thanking me? <laughs> Not until you get into it for a little while do you realize the shift that it puts you personally. And I get it now, and, and I'm not going to be uh, so filled with ego to say you're welcome, but <laughs> but I, I, I do get it mm-hmm. because it does take a lot, and it does take some sacrifice, and it does take a lot of maneuvering um, right. to put yourself in that position. Sorry, I'll ask one more question, and Go then ahead. I'll, I'll let the uh, side continue. How old are you? I'm 38 years old. I okay. will be 39 next month. Because you've done so much work in you know a short period of time, and you look like you're in your... 30s, I would have guessed early 30s. Oh, thank you. Um, He's flatter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 33, and, and so I, you know, I get asked the same question a lot because when I talk about different things, they have mm. been done concurrently oftentimes, yeah. right? Oh, I get and that question from my students sometimes too, and I always tease them, and I, I just respond, old enough to be your professor. <laughs> <laughs> but I've never been, a answer. Well, I've never been shy to, to, to say that. You know, mm-hmm. I always get a kick out of where people perceive me because I'm a horrible judge of age. Mm-hmm. I just can never tell. We've talked a lot about education, mm-hmm. uh, mostly yours. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about education in your district. Sure. Aurora Public Schools and Cherry Creek Public Schools mm-hmm. are in your district. Correct. Very different results from the two diff- different districts. Yeah. What can you tell me about plans you might have to help them? And, I mean, you'll be a, a state legislator at this mm-hmm. point. So what would you do in order to help the state as well, considering we have some of the lowest performing schools in the country? Yeah, this is huge. And, you know, not just in my district is education a top issue. I think it's across the state. Uh, We've seen a lot of groups that have really come to the table hard on these issues because they want to see improvements. And you're right. Uh, District 40 uh, overlaps both Aurora Public Schools and Cherry Creek School District. Happy to say that I have sat down with both Scott Siegfried and Rico Munn uh, to talk to them about what they would like to see in the future and how I, as a state legislator, can be a, a state legislator, excuse me, can be uh, a good partner to them. I care about education. I've got two school age kids, two boys, 11 and 5, that are both in Cherry Creek schools. And uh, I, I mean that not only as a father, but as a potential lawmaker in terms of how to help them. And you illustrate the differences that I think really come down to school finance. Um, First and foremost, I will not say that I'm an expert on school finance. I don't think most of our legislators are experts on school finance. And so when it comes to these bills, and and they are percolating in this session as well too, uh, I I don't know that some are going to go the direction we want them to. Uh, I know people are talking a lot about mill levy equalization. You want to talk about a super sexy policy topic? (laughs) Let's go there, right? So I think, oh, yeah, I think people are very concerned about this. And so I had, you know, great meetings with Dr. Siegfried and with Superintendent Munn. Um, I believe that they are both doing their best to make sure that their constituencies are, are well represented in terms of, of student outcomes and learning. Um, I, I personally feel that in those personal conversations I had with them, they are very committed to their school districts, uh, which is great as, as, as a father of school-age kids. Um, I think that they are very committed to success. I think that APS being debruced obviously helps them out a lot. And I think not being debruced has put Cherry Creek in the situation that it's in. When I say that, I mean, there there are probably myriad examples, but um, I know that they have talked about uh, teacher salaries needing to be examined. Not necessarily that there would be layoffs or that they wouldn't get any raises, but because of their budget issues, they're having a hard time. Well, let's zoom out a little bit and look at the fact that teachers on average seem to be pretty happy in Cherry Creek. They have longer tenures. They get paid better as opposed to APS. Um, So there are different uh, tangible challenges that these two school districts are having to to deal with. Um, And then you come back to that school finance issue again, mill-levy equalization, which I I, I know that uh, CCSD is obviously very concerned about um, because there are some people outside of the district, um, people across the street, I'm looking at the state capitol right now, who are wanting to ensure that Colorado's kids are all given a fair shot when it comes to their educational outcomes. And I believe that they should have that as well. 
Okay, so you mentioned debrucing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there are plenty of our listeners that know, but can you describe that a bit um, and how maybe Aurora Schools went about it? So that's a great question. Um, I, I probably can't speak directly in terms of how they went about it other than knowing that they have gone through it. Um, I, as, as we said off the air just a, a bit ago, it's one of those things where I know that it occurred, but I don't know that I'm the best at, at explaining it. Um, it, it, it speaks, and, and Syed and Simon help me make sure that I'm not being erroneous here, but it speaks to um, the financial element behind, I believe, both Gallagher and Tabor, well, more Tabor, right? Tabor, yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, going back to the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, uh, where money goes after the fact. Um, we're unique in Colorado in that with the passage of Tabor, um, the funds, and here's where I'm getting caught up, um, that are left over uh, go back to the pockets of the taxpayers, right? Yes. And and we realize, at least I get it, and, and, and while I'm not in, in agreement with it, I, I actually believe that we should repeal Tabor. The idea that we get money back is always alluring. Right, we get rebates all the time. I'd have tires put on one of our vehicles, and of course the price tag was much better once we got the rebate back. Right, so getting yeah. cash back in your pocket is always going to feel great. Mm-hmm. But I also personally feel that putting money into infrastructure—that adage that I'm sure numerous grandfathers have told us—in terms of you get what you pay for. Right. Oh. So, to my knowledge. Aurora Public Schools, as have other school districts, have gone about this, you know, term of debrucing in terms of saying, uh, we want to seek certain exemptions to Tabor in terms of the way that the district is funded. Mm-hmm. And again, I gave that disclaimer of not being an expert in school finance before. I have, I have been involved in the operations of schools in the past. That's a whole other different conversation that I'm sure people are gonna perk up about because it was a charter school. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, and, and, and that's a whole other um, discussion that I'm more than happy to have. I wanted to talk to you about it a bit. And yeah. See your feelings on them a little bit. Yeah, but, uh, for sure. Well, no, yeah. but, but so, so what this has done because APS has, has sought out uh, these exemptions, I think, helps them in certain ways, whereas uh, Cherry Creek School District has not sought out those exemptions or debrucing. And so that, again, gets us to one of these disparate elements of how the two districts differ. Um, there are elements of the districts that are, that are really similar. You know, for example, um, numerous languages that are spoken by the students in both districts mm-hmm. that, that reflect the diversity of the community that those districts lie in, which is great. But at the end of the day, when you're coming down to operations, when you're talking about fiscal issues that you know uh, really do affect, as we mentioned before, those teacher salaries, for example, and retaining them, um, then that gets into some of the, the stickiness of, of whether or not you know, the, the, the district is debruced or not. I honestly uh, know that it's something that I have to better familiarize myself with. Part of the reason I wanted to sit down with Superintendent Siegfried and why I wanted to sit down uh, with Superintendent Munn. Um, I don't envy their positions, but again, I do think that they are doing their best in trying to lead some very large school districts, not only because they they have a, a, a good, solid, positive outlook on wanting to help their students achieve the best they can, but I think they both have a solid grasp on the challenges they have when it does come to that financing. Uh, I know that one of the interim committees um, before this session started that uh, there were a couple of senators who were looking at uh, sort of reconfiguring the way that we do school finance. um, And last I can recall, probably not going to happen from from what I read in, in certain outlets. So yeah, I don't know if that's a great uh, rundown um, in terms of school finance. I, I don't want to just balk and say, oh, it's confusing. I'm going to let somebody else handle it. No, this is what I signed up for. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of, of learning, I mean, that's what I do for a living. So, yeah. so, we're, so I'm going to do my best in terms of trying to, to best understand it without postulating that I'm going to come in and be able to, to have all the answers. Um, yeah. You know, Seeking one seat in the 65-seat chamber and then having the 35 people over on the other side of the building, 
you want to talk about too many cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> sure. Uh, you, you could say that, but at the end of the day, I think trying to be innovative and collaborative and trying to, to improve those outcomes. Um, people like to point out the position that Colorado is in, in terms of funding per pupil or where we are in terms of, there are a lot of measures and a lot of indicators that we can point to in terms of where we fall. But I think what we all agree on is that there are some major improvements we need to undertake. And, and that I can tell you I'm ready for. Well, I feel like we've talked a lot about particularly the metro area, but you're right. Like statewide, thinking that way, with rural schools, a lot of districts mm-hmm. going to four-day weeks. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, funding is lacking in a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. What at the state legislature can you do to, to spread the wealth, sort of, to help other yeah. areas that may need it? Yeah, and I think that urban-rural divide is really important to point out. It's not lost on me. I mean, I grew up, as I mentioned earlier, in, in rural Arizona. My, my hometown had anywhere between 3,000, 3,500 people at any given time. And so having grown up in rural America, having grown up in the poorest county in Arizona, I get that. Uh, I lucked out, being that it was a, a, a tight-knit community. And so I think uh, rural schools do benefit from sort of a... a a social population dynamic and that smaller communities can provide positive outcomes for, you know, educational um, settings. That said, what you've pointed outside is, is very <laughs> detrimental. Um, I don't know how I feel about a four-day school, school week uh, at certain levels when you want our students to be learning as much as they can and, and preparing. I know how I'd feel about a four-day work week, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, but that's, a that's a different story, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think there are some disparities, yeah. right? And I think that's part of the, the reason that, that some legislators, um, you know, I know that this was something that, that JBC was looking at, again, going back to that mill levy equalization, mm-hmm. the whole ethos of that. And again, this is just, just my own perspective, and I'm not privy to a lot of the discussions that, that were held um, and as a candidate looking from the outside in, it, it seems that that was a big part of why they wanted to look at the equalization mm-hmm. bill to ensure that those rural schools didn't get shortchanged. Mm-hmm. And I get that it's probably easy to point to Cherry Creek School District as an example of a school district that typically performs well. Mm-hmm. Financially, at least, it, it appears to be very solid. Yes. Mm-hmm. When you look at the greater statewide economy of Colorado, um, when, when you see that, that, that we offer a great quality of life. Yeah, we have a lot of pros, but, but some of those cons are the fact that, and, and I hate for it to, to be a pun intended, but these kids are getting shortchanged, mm-hmm. right? Literally. And it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's, it, it's, it's not, not a great thing. Um, I'm, I'm grateful uh, to have Nancy Todd as a, as a state senator, um, and she'll be retiring after this session. Um, she has been somebody who has been uh, a huge proponent for schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just, just to uh, illustrate the fact that, that the rural schools aren't lost on her either, I, I believe her Facebook profile photo has an award calling her a, a rural schools champion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, listening to people like her, paying attention to records of people like her, and there are a, a ton of great legislators who really, really squarely put a focus on education. Mm-hmm. I, I, I firmly believe that they have the best interests of Colorado's kids at heart uh, when, when they get in there. Um, I think there are current examples of um, the funding structure reforms that are being pursued. One of them is a bill that would get rid of the cost of living adjustment for the funding that goes to communities because apparently you know some... Um, small, but um, you know, power, economically powerful um, communities and like like Aspen and Vale have been getting uh, almost twice as much mm-hmm. per student as some other um, communities because well, of the cost of living yeah, adjustment. A few miles outside of those towns, and those kids get almost nothing. But you're in Aspen or Vale, and they have everything. So right. yeah, maybe they are. I mean, before Tabor is uh, a salt, but you know, maybe they are ways to, to to try to minimize the injustices that we have in the current funding system and I think that would be a you know a, a great way to just just keep looking at ways of, of, of doing that until we can do something more fundamental about it and I think what you've tapped into is really important too because it it goes beyond that urban rural divide right you, you're talking about these mountain towns that are inherently rural mm. but because of the draw the allure 
you know, in terms of, I mean, you, you go to an Aspen or you go to a Vale and you see why people are there and you see how they can become, you know, very economically solid, but you go to a smaller town out on the Eastern Plains or the Western Slope and it's a different story. Mm. So really, instead of it just being bifurcated between urban and rural, you're really seeing, you know, the disparities in terms of, well, as opposed to just urban and rural, let's look at, you know, who's really raking the money in from tourism, from skiing and Mm. so on, just as an example to the smaller towns that were maybe largely agrarian, mm-hmm. rural farming communities, right? Yeah, exactly. So you've tapped into something really important, I think. Yeah. We're going to keep on with the education thing because I think we can move to sort of the next step in education. Um, Colorado has some of the highest numbers of educated, like college-educated people mm-hmm. in the country, yet it seems like there's sort of a divide from the public school system to the college system here. Mm-hmm. How do you propose to sort of help fix that so that kids here can focus on going to school here and staying here yeah. versus like CU takes a large number of students from out of state? I, I don't Boulder know campus in particular. Yeah, Boulder yeah. campus in particular. Yeah. Um, they have a very large number of students from out of state. How do you propose to yeah. sort of bridge that gap? It's actually a, a really important aspect to me. And it was something that I, you know, on my website, which is www.johnron.co is in Colorado, <laughs> not com, uh, johnrun.co. One of the points that I talk about in terms of what's important to me is, is that pipeline of our students who go to school here, um, who come up through our public school systems. Uh, how do we ensure that if college is something that they want to pursue, that they have that opportunity? For a, 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 a Western state of our population, we have a lot of offerings in terms of education. Mm. Mm-hmm. And some people are often shocked when I say the college isn't for everybody. Some of them are almost put off by it, saying, you're a professor, why would you say college isn't for I everybody? I don't disagree with that statement at all. Like, it's not for everybody. Right. Um, and I don't think it's a good benchmark mm-hmm. for us as a society to say, this person isn't college educated, so we shouldn't entrust them with this. Mm. There might be some things where that is absolutely true. I, God forbid, needed open-heart surgery right now. I'm going to trust that you two are going to call an ambulance and not try and do it yourself. No, oh. I'm not, not trained for that. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm too tired for it today. So. <laughs> it's a long I, mean, I mean, Simon, you are a man of many talents from what I know. <laughs> you might be holding out, but... You know, so things like that. But I think the, the fact of the matter is, and one of the things that I really plug is that we've got great trade schools and technical schools, community colleges that we mm-hmm. can really leverage. So we have pushed and pushed this idea of the American dream for a long time. And to give you a little bit of context, you know, I told you about some of my upbringing. And I will always remember those elements of my childhood where my parents, you know, they were gone in the morning before I woke up. Mm. I did my morning routine, got myself to school, and they were home after I got home. Just dead dog tired, plop on the couch. And I was the one responsible for taking my dad's steel toe boots off, right? Mm. They were just exhausted. And I'll never forget them saying, John, we just we want you to do so much better than this. We want you to have mm. a better life than this. I thought I had a pretty good life. We got to the point to where we were able to move out of the single wide trailer that we lived in in my childhood into a pretty nice 2,000 square foot uh, ranch style home with property. I thought my parents were doing pretty good. Mm. They taught me the value of hard work. Um, I had food to eat. You know, we did pretty well for a long time until a wave of layoffs came and my mother lost her job and my my father had to move to Phoenix. Um, But I always felt that they put in their work. They did it honestly. They were tired. And so I think we kind of fabricated the fact that because it was working with their hands or because it was this, this blue collar term that I've put out there, that it was at a power plant that, that I could do quote unquote better. You know, I love school. I stayed in school way too long. I stayed in school until they said, you can't come anymore. Right. <laughs> they shoved a diploma in my hand and then they mm-hmm. entrusted me to teach. I love telling that story. But at the same time, and I don't love admitting this, but I will because it, it, it speaks to a lot of the issues that we need to confront. I owe more on my student loans than I do on my home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that statement is loaded with some privilege because I was able to purchase a home in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing grandiose. It's, it's, it's a town home. We share a wall with some really great neighbors. And I'm lucky that we have it. I'm glad to put a house, uh, a, a roof over my kids' heads. Mm-hmm. But... 
at the same time, again, this narrative of you have to go to college to succeed. And I think the student debt crisis, I mean, the fact that we have presidential candidates saying, if I'm elected, we're going to cancel your debt. Well, I'm listening. Hell yeah, I'm listening, too. right? <laughs> and, and the thing is, is it's like, well, why go if you couldn't pay for it? It's like, well, I, it was getting paid for until I lost my, my funding. Mm-hmm. And until I decided to go to the P, to get a PhD uh, right at the beginning of a, a, an economic recession, so <laughs> um, you know, uh, moments like that make me feel not entirely too smart. But at the end of the day, it is what it is. I'm doing my best. So I think, w- and, and I don't want to get too far off of of what your central question was. I think it's important because we have students who are showing this really great academic prowess of being game changers for our society, right? And I want those students, especially ones that, that came up through our school systems, to have that first crack at going to a CU. Now I went to Arizona State University. I went when it was still very much considered a party school, and I loved it. I didn't know any better. I had to go in state. My parents didn't know much about getting me through college. My dad thought, hey, maybe he can go to a community college because that's something we can pay for. He specifically referenced the one that was um, in my hometown. It was a satellite of a, of a, a regional community college. And I'm thinking to myself, hell no. <laughs> I am not staying home and doing that. I'm at least getting out of here. And I was really lucky for my undergraduate to get a, a scholarship that, that paid my tuition and that, that paid for things. Same thing through, through my master's degree. I didn't accrue most of my student debt until my PhD, until that economic downturn. Mm. And having a child and trying to procure for a family um, I'm fortunate that the cost of living in Athens, Georgia was very low. Uh, I would not have been able to survive in a much larger city. So I want students more than anything to, and it's hard because when we're young, we, we run through the gamut of things that we want to do. We don't know that we might want to switch things up, right? But we also don't realize that, hey, if you want to be an HVAC technician, a welder, a mechanic, that those things, if you like working with your hands, if you like being customer service oriented, if you like fixing things and you can still have a really comfortable living, go for it. Go for it. What I have loved, so I just, just as another aside, I was a, a visiting uh, scholar at a couple of different universities in Germany for, for four summers in a row. And I loved going there and seeing a much reduced social stigma around careers and people where they were, their station in life. And Germany has such an interesting model of, of schools. They have their research universities too, but they also have schools where, where you could essentially learn to be a welder in the morning and in the afternoon you're gonna go to your German literature class, right? This, I'm probably gonna butcher it, my German isn't great, this Hochschule model, right? Okay. So it's, it's great because it gives you technical and tactile skills, but it also makes you a well-rounded individual. Yes. And I think that, that there could be some opportunities for expansion there. But what I've seen in this educational journey of my own, as well as that of others, you know, I, I, I hope she won't mind me mention. I won't mention her by name, but somebody I went to high school with, who I knew was brilliant in high school, uh, went on to get her PhD in, in one of the hard sciences at Berkeley, UC Berkeley. She saw an environment that was not uh, well-suited for, one that could be toxic, which academia can be sometimes. And uh, she and her partner moved uh, to a different location, and uh, she became uh, a hairstylist. And she found herself again. She found herself uh, passionate about making people look good, about making people happy, about her creative talents. And I thought to myself, more power to you. I said, that's great. I don't know how much of a talking point it might be like, yeah, I got a PhD in chemistry from Berkeley, and now I'm doing hair. (laughs) But you know what? Life is short. Life is super short, and I'm proud of her for all of that. And I, you know, I've got a lot of friends who have left academia because it's difficult. I have a lot of people who have gone back to school uh, or who've gone to trade school. I've, I've known other people who've gone back to, to barber school because what they did, it was like, you know what, I'm tired of this. I want to talk to people. Mm. I want to cut hair. It's therapeutic. The snip, the sound of the scissors, mm. you know, whatever. It's, so it's, and you see the result of your work right away. Yes. As opposed to academia, which right. is one of the things, right? It, it's hard to. Oh, we have to defend ourselves every day. We have, to defend <laughs> our, we, we have to defend our existence every day. We have to prove our worth. I think something that, that might make my run for the state house a little crazier is that I'm also up for tenure this year. 
Oh, wow. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> well, not yet. Not <laughs> yet. <laughs> Even being up see. for it, though, that means yeah, you're putting some work. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And so I'll actually know the internal results of my committees that vote at the school and the results of the election in the same week. So I oh, might, wow. yeah, hmm. I, I, I joked saying, I, I, it was a, it was a Facebook uh, post that I put up. I, I, I joked about, you know, go big or go home, but I said, I'd rather go big and go to the house. So <laughs> I, 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 I really hope that both uh, turn not? out the way I want to, but mm. what I can say just to sum up that, that thread is I want our students to succeed in whatever way they they feel best if it's going to a community college and getting some more tactile training something that won't take them as long like i went to school for a really long time i know why and at the same time i don't (laughs) but if they can get into something that is going to be fruitful useful it's going to bring them contentment success and security go for it and i do think that our students based here in Colorado really need to to have that opportunity. You talk about, you know, CU Boulder has been put under some scrutiny. It is part of the CU family. I am a, an employee of the University of Colorado. So I'm not trying to impugn them, but I think that that is something that people will raise an eyebrow at, saying this is one of our public institutions. And why are we, you know, trying to skate by financially by ensuring that that we we have the revenue we need from those out-of-state students and i know i'm generalizing big time there but honestly and i'll throw this out there i I wonder if maybe at the state level if cu got a little bit more support that maybe we could reframe and make sure that colorado students do get the first swipe i want to say we've beaten education all the way down (laughs) covered it really well we probably have time for maybe one more topic i'll let you pick which one you want to go on we could either talk about health insurance or gun safety. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> that fork in the road. And which one do you take, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say they're both important. They are. Um, they're. It's. It's. It's truly difficult to to pick one or the other. I would have to go with health insurance at this point in time. Okay. Um, I, and the only reason I say that is because there are so many other people out there um, who have brought light to the need for gun safety, responsible gun ownership, things of that nature. I'm sure there will be plenty of other times where I can address that. So, mm-hmm. um, But let's go ahead and talk about insurance then. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you were talking a little bit on your website. I saw a little bit about uh, talking about insurance. Can you specify whether you are for or against or impartial for universal health care? Yeah, I'm absolutely for universal health care. Well, I just say because on your website I saw somewhere talking about buying affordable insurance, and I didn't know if you went all the way or not. Yeah, so this is one of those topics where I think there are are caveats out the nose, right? Mm -hmm. And as a candidate, being fully immersed in this and and having, you know, endorsement applications and people trying to assess where you fall on their so-called report cards and whatnot, I think asking questions about this is good and especially opportunities to provide context and also to acknowledge that there are multiple proposals on the table, right? So what I want to, to assert firmly is that I believe everybody should have the ability to be covered by insurance, right? I realize that if something happens and you go to an ER, nobody can refuse you, but they sure as hell can bill you. Yep. Right. So I think that this is something that we need to, well, I don't want to make it sound like I'm late to the game, but there are many people at the national and state level who have had this uh, on their radar for a long time. Mm. And we've had like a uh, legislative or not um, ballot measures and stuff like right. that. Trying before here to like 69 and stuff like that. <clears throat> right. Exactly. And so I think the way we do it, obviously, you know, we're going to whittle away and we're going to make some incremental changes. Um, I appreciate you pointing that out on my website. I probably need to take a look at it and mm-hmm. and clarify things. I've done that before mm-hmm. because I've probably come off in ways that were not truly representative of what it is that I, I assert as, as a candidate and what mm-hmm. kind of policies I want to see. That's what happens when you're an academic, right? <laughs> you want to give, give full context. Keep revising. Well, uh, and, 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 and that gets lost sometimes. Mm-hmm. And people who know me well probably know that I can be very pedantic and that I probably stammered over that paragraph for half a day before I was comfortable with it. Um, yeah, so, and, and it's personal to me too. Uh, it's personal because, um, and I tell this story to give people context. 
Uh, I think sometimes it humanizes us to share a little bit of our stories and to be somewhat vulnerable as candidates. Um, you know, I lost my mother just uh, four years ago this month. Um, she was actually with me and my family. Um, and I'm, I'm happy that she she passed when she was with us because I was able to, to take care of everything from that point in time. But, you know, she was forced into to retiring early uh, due to health care uh, or, or to, to health concerns, rather. But also one of the things that I've been confronting a lot more lately, and it's been becoming easier to talk about, is her struggle with uh, addiction and substance abuse. Mm, yeah. My mother was also bipolar, and that was also very difficult to, to address mm. uh, because we didn't find this out until after she passed, uh, going through some of her medical oh, records. Nice. Yeah. Um, and so I, one of the things I do call attention to, um, probably too briefly on my website, is the fact that I do believe in increased access to mental health care as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important. And so, you know, my mom uh, struggled with, with this addiction and substance abuse. And, you know, there were years where I was angry with her. I was mad, thinking to myself, you are, you are no longer the person who raised me. You know, you raised me with all these ethical and moral values to be a good person. You helped stimulate my interests academically and to, to mm. pursue what I've done. And she was a really lovely person. She was uh, somebody who always did her best to try and make people feel appreciated. She thought that everyone had a story and she didn't care if you were famous or somebody struggling to make ends meet. Mm. She wanted you to, to feel valuable. And so, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Of course, I miss her every day. I wish she was still here. Mm. Um, but me being her son and watching her do that was, was hard. And I realized that what I did more often than not that I shouldn't have done was punish her. She was already going through plenty um, by, by choosing to, to do these harmful, deleterious things to her body, to her well-being, to her mind, and to her heart, which is eventually mm. what stopped working. Now, and of, of course, yeah. she was trying to self-medicate. Yeah, right. yeah. In, in some form or another. The, that's the intention is to exactly. feel better and, and treat others better, but that's sure. not what the outcome is. Right, and I think her drug of choice, and, and there were more than one, um, were terrible. And it was easy for me to be upset at the people who were furnishing that to her. Mm. At the end of the day, that was a choice that she made, but until I finally put myself in her shoes... You know, at the very end was really sort of where I reframed and, and had a lot of sympathy mm. and, and care for and not not being able to imagine what it would be like to to go through that. And so, you know, if I w had been in Georgia or if I had been in Chicago, those those emergency late night flights, you know, let's 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 go get a last minute flight on spirit from O'Hare to Phoenix. That's not something I would wish on anybody if you've ever flown <laughs> spirit. Yeah. <laughs> but but it, it was the, the, the cheapest, fastest way I could mm. get to her when she was in these moments of crisis that really broke me in a lot of ways. Um, it was Is that hard. what made you think you needed to be closer to home? Yeah, that, yeah. that was a big part of it. Yeah. That was a big part of it. And, and I'm glad we did that. And so, you know, ultimately her heart gave out. And I'll never forget, <laughs> it, I can't remember if it was her cardiologist or her cardiovascular surgeon. I was sitting in his office across from him. And he was making chit chat while he was going through through some of the things with her prognosis. And he's like, "So what do you do?" And I said, "I'm I'm a professor at, at DePaul in Chicago." And he looked at me and he said, "Oh, so she was telling the truth?" <laughs> and I just very flatly said, "Yes, she was telling the truth." Wow. And so this stigma around people who self-medicate, who ultimately do harm themselves, and do have a tendency to harm others, had permeated that doctor's office. Well, the fact that he didn't believe her, that, that somebody who self-medicated in a way that she did could, could have a son who was a college professor. We, we, mm. we, we put you in these boxes that only, you know, people with the white picket fences and who did very well off financially could ever afford to have a son who was a college professor. Mm. No, I'm happy to smash that false image. And so when we got to the gravitas of what her condition was, he said, you know, she needs another heart surgery. She's going to get it to fix a leaky valve underneath uh, her heart. And he said, uh, but if she ever does any of these drugs again, she's gone. Mm. They won't do another her, one? Her, well, he, he, he was basically just alluding to the point that her heart was just too damaged to take gotcha. it anymore. Mm. And so, you know, interestingly enough, um, and I tell this story because I think it's, it's, it's worth telling, uh, I have an aunt uh, who was actually my mother's stepsister 
um, who I really love and appreciate, um, they both had congestive heart failure. And I, I don't mean to trivialize what, what my aunt went through either, but, but I'm giving this illustration to let people know that healthcare is not equitable in this country. And that is because my mother was on an insurance plan that was not as great, she was not going to be put at the front of the line to get better treatment because there was a past history of drug use and addiction. She was not viewed upon as a priority patient. And so my, my, my aunt was able to identify her issue. And granted, remember, they weren't blood relatives, right? But the same condition. Uh, she got her treatment, um, decent insurance, um, and great medical treatment at the Mayo Clinic uh, in Scottsdale. Uh, her case was serious enough to need a heart transplant. Um, she got it. She's doing very well. And I'm thrilled to have her here. I'm glad she's still here. I love my aunt very much. But I would really love to have my mother here too. So when it comes to equitable outcomes, this is something I've, I've leaned into. And again, I'm not going to profess to be an expert in healthcare. I'm not going to profess to be an expert in, in insurance. But I can tell you that private insurance and all these tiny little nagging issues that factor in have made this access to healthcare for our people very difficult, hard. And I know that, that me telling this story, I hope it resonates with somebody. I'm sure it resonates with a lot of people, but I can guarantee you I am far from being the only one that this has ever happened to. Mm. I am far from being the only one who had a loved one who probably could have been saved, but wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I get that my mother's situation, that there are people who say, well, she harmed herself. She did that to herself. She could have made choices. We can all make choices. But at the end of the day, she didn't get additional treatment she could have gotten. And it was by and large because no. she kept getting put off and put off, saying, well, you're on this health care plan, so this is all we can really do no. for you. And, and that's, yeah, common if someone has liver cirrhosis and they, sure. they use alcohol, they will not be considered top priority for... Um, for right. a transplant. And, right. um, well, and, and we, we keep talking about issues like that in terms of pre-existing conditions, mm, right? Yes. We are biological organisms, right? Things happen. You, you don't have to smoke no. to get lung cancer, right? No. So when we talk about these related issues, you can have cirrhosis of the liver without having ever had a drop of alcohol. It can be based by and large on diet, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and I'm just saying, in general, things like that happen. Yeah. So when it comes well, to, to, to health insurance, is it a major wicked mm -hmm. problem, one to where we don't really see a foreseeable end in sight? I mean, we talk about wicked problems in policy classes all the time. Yeah. I love to bring that up as a, as a teaching tool, right? We do, and it's, a, it, it's critical, and it's something that we, we need to get on. So in terms of, again, going back to your question, I do believe that everybody should be able to be covered. It really does, in my opinion, depends on the plan. I know we have multiple plans out there, mm -hmm. plans where people are saying private insurance should still exist, but mm -hmm. there should be the government or public option. And then we have people, at least you know, presidential candidates, for example, at the national level who are saying, no, wipe out the private insurance industry and cover everybody nationally. Yes. And I get that there are other countries who do that. You know, we, we can pick a Scandinavian country, for example, and talk about how efficiently run they are, right? Mm, yeah. um, and I get that there are people here who, who love to, to fall back on that adage of saying, well, we do things differently here. Of course well, we do. But and I, I know I hear the argument of scale a lot, too, versus them. So it's, it's hard to compare, but it's not that difficult to compare. It's, it's a weird thing. You're exactly right. Yeah. I understand that we are a large, unwieldy country, that in the mm -hmm. grand scheme of things, in the history of the world, we're still like, what, in our late teens, maybe early 20s as a country? <laughs> At least, yeah. <laughs> right. And so I get that these other countries that have been around, you know, since medieval ages and, and this boundary shift and as different governments emerge, I get that. I get that. I get that it's up to our generation to really step up and be the country we think we are to to do what we can to make those changes. So at the very least, try? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And if you don't try, you're never going to see that change. And I think what, what we often see in some of these political spheres is people who want 
who, well, we, we might be on the same team, right? Same political party, and we all agree that change needs to happen. And then we kind of fall into those factions where it's the people who say we need radical change now versus others who say, well, let's make these changes incrementally. And that's difficult. It's really difficult sometimes. So I, well, I don't. That's the whole point, isn't it? Finding the compromise, the middle ground to work towards a better future? As long as there's progress, absolutely. I personally think so. Uh, it's tough because I think there are themes emerging in our political sphere where, where we're really saying it's my way or the highway. Mm-hmm. And I get the people mm-hmm. are very, very passionate saying we need this change and we need it now. And I understand that. And it takes a lot of guts, I think, to stand up and, and say that you're not going to compromise, yeah. that it has to be a radical change. And honestly, there are probably some policy areas where we're ready for it. Others where we have wiggle room, where we have the room to breathe a little bit, maybe not so much. I, I, I don't know. But, but maybe we can kind of whittle away and do some of those incremental mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. But it's true. When you were working in a, in a legislative process in bodies as large as this, state legislatures, Congress, and whatnot, when you have all these other voices that are factoring in, it's going to be a challenge no matter what. So mm-hmm. I don't know that I was able to give you as comprehensive of um, – a rundown of, of where I am on that. I picked insurance because as I've been thinking more about people, their ailments, their desire to be well and their desire to have a as robust of a life as they can while we're all still here, um, it's hard to watch people ail. It is. Yeah. When you know that there is the science and the medicine behind it to help those people heal, uh, to be as whole as they can and, and to thrive. Mm. And I want people to be happy. I want people to be well. I wouldn't want to wish anything that my mother or anybody else that has gone through something that difficult, I, I don't want to wish that on anybody. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, if we care about the human condition as much as we say we do in our political circles, it's time to step it up and actually do something about it. Okay, let's move into final thoughts. For my final thought, uh, I'm going to go back to the impeachment. Uh, it has been a lot of stuff going on lately. We heard some opening statements, I guess, from lawyers for Trump. Uh, He hired a very interesting team to back him. It appears to me that they're just playing ball so that they can just get through it, get it over with, get the vote done, and move on. And knowing that they're not going to actually get President Trump kicked out, they're just basically letting the Democrats spin their wheels to make themselves look awful. That's my take on it. Do you guys have any other view on that? or No. You know, I'll be honest with you. I was really uh, struck by listening to Alan Dershowitz on NPR recently and how he admitted that he was proud to have represented Jeffrey Epstein. He didn't kill himself. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, at what point are we in this country where where that happens? Uh, Most of us who've been around long enough know who Alan Dershowitz is, know who he's represented. I don't think most of us are really surprised that he's part of this legal team. I just felt that, that was a really sad statement on his part in, in terms of where we are uh, as a people and socially. You know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. That election in 2016 was a big part of, of why I decided to, to do what I'm doing, too. Nice. All right. Simon, you figured yours out yet? Well, I, I think my f- final thought is going to be about uh, campaigns. Uh, so both John and I are running in different districts, and Said, we have run a couple of campaigns before. I think I have developed a great appreciation for volunteers Mm -hmm. uh, because they are really the drivers of campaigns. You know, no matter how great the candidate is, you can't do this alone. Um, And so I'm just going to encourage the listeners who are not involved in the campaigns, if they know candidates or causes they care about, and even if they don't get too involved but help somehow, you play a huge role in, in this process, and you are very much appreciated. Some of us think more than others, but um, here is a big appreciation and thank you to all volunteers for, for all campaigns and all causes, because without you, you know, that the work cannot be done. You got yours? I mean, I would also just want to add a big amen to that. <laughs> no, I think that's great. And I Absolutely. mean, you know, Simon and I are in very different districts, uh, in very different primaries. So all these contexts are very different, and uh, but I think I think you're right. I, I've always enjoyed my time as a volunteer. Um, I, I I don't volunteer for people I don't believe in, and so uh, uh, I had an opportunity to meet some of Simon's volunteers recently at an event, and it's great to see that. It's great to see people propping other people up, and 
yeah, I'm excited to, to, to see to see where your uh, race goes, and, and hopefully we're all successful in this. Thank you. Yeah, um, I look forward to serving together in, in the legislature, and there are a lot of good candidates running, and there are a lot of uh, good lawmakers who are in there, so mm-hmm. I think uh, this is actually a good time for state politics. I'll agree with that. And I guess just to, to, to kind of do my, my final thoughts is one, gratitude for the both of you for letting me come on the podcast. Thank I've enjoyed too. listening to, to past episodes. And I think it's important to elevate dialogues and to, to you know, tune into these, uh, I don't know if I would even call it an alternative media source, but options to further listen and, and, and to, to take a deep dive into to the state of affairs in Colorado and, and where we are. As we've talked about a lot of these things, you know, we talk about the Trump impeachment, we talk about volunteers, we're going from that national huge spotlight of um, a disaster of, a, of an American presidency, is what I would call it, to an inspiring story of, of Simon's candidacy and, and being in a tough primary and, and, and gratitude for his volunteers to see kind of what opposite ends of the spectrum um, that, that political realm is. I thought to myself... You know, that if I was going to do this, and I didn't anticipate this, maybe 15 years ago when I was working in and around this, but I thought, no, I'm going to stay in my lane, and my lane is educating future public servants. Mm. But then life happens, strange elections in 2016 happen, and you just feel the urge. And sometimes when, when the call comes, you answer it, right? Uh, but what I did is I pledged to myself that I was going to do this as authentically as possible. Mm. I think we have been losing out on authenticity in the political sphere for a long time. Mm. We're all human. We all have flaws. We all have things that are not going to make us perfect and shiny to an electorate. But I feel that if I'm going to put my face out there, even in just a district of 80,000 folks, I'm going to do it as authentically as possible. I know that I'm not going to be able to please everybody. I know that I'm going to have some policy stances that are going to rub people the wrong way. Mm. Um, I, 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 I know that um, there are going to be interesting aspects of, of who I am as a person that won't resonate or sit well with people, and, and that's okay. Uh, but I can tell you that, that I, like so many other people, uh, you know, Simon, you just alluded to, to all the great people who are currently under the Gold Dome and the people who are running. I'm heartened by that. I am buoyed by the fact that so many amazing people are running. It's exciting. So that even if I lose, I'm going to be happy that there are other really good people in there who are going to be making change. But as a candidate moving forward, I'm not going to do it under the guise of, of any other pretense of being somebody I'm not. I'm going to do it as I am. Uh, and I'm going to be as authentic and honest and real and vulnerable as I can so that people understand that I hear them, that I want to represent them well, that I want to be a good servant leader, and that hopefully I can engage them to the best of my ability to, to work on their behalf. And it would be an honor to do so. So I just say at the very end, to, to, to put in the little plug, if you want somebody who's going to be empathetic, who's going to engage you, who's going to work like hell to make sure that your interests are represented, please visit my website. It's www.johnron.co, is in Colorado.com. Follow me on social media, uh, John Ron, the number four CO, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and Instagram. For you folks that live in South Aurora, uh, let's talk. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to do this and, and do what I can. Uh, to work as hard as I can on your behalf. And I want to know what's on your minds. I want to know what's going on in your lives, what kind of changes you want to see, and how I can best help you. Don't forget to donate. Yes. Thank you, Side. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, if you can contribute, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. The worst thing about this is going to people and asking them for their hard-earned money. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how grateful I am to the people who not only give, but, but give to widen my eyes. Like, wow, thank you so much. It's mm-hmm. hard. It's hard, but I know that when you set goals, when you can tell people that you're really trying to, to do your best, I am, I am humbled by what people have done to show their support. They might not be able to volunteer, Simon, right? Mm. But you know what? If they can toss some cash your way, it helps so much. Um, and you know, for, for a so-called smaller race, I'm doing a lot on my own, but having this helps. It helps get our message out. It helps uh, let people know that we are committed to doing the work and there is work involved. You cannot skate by, mm. um, by, by you know, just a, a presence or, or uh, social media or, or, or any one thing alone. You have to earn the money. You have to. That's a whole other topic in terms yeah. of campaign mm-hmm. finance reform. I believe we need that too. 
I believe there can be some changes. I think Colorado on the state level has done a decent job at least. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I think people are surprised when they say, well, what's the max? And I say, well, overall you can max out at 400, and they're like, oh. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of a surprise, right? But you know what? At the end of the day, I will say every dollar helps. If you can give 5, 10, 15, I'm grateful for it. Everybody who who has contributed a thing to my campaign has gotten a thank you note because I believe that you cannot go too far in showing – the gratitude, no matter what. If people are willing to give on your behalf, you deserve my gratitude. And uh, I appreciate the support for anybody who wants to support somebody who's going to work hard to move Colorado forward. Awesome. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Everybody say goodbye. Bye. Bye. All right. Take it easy.